It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Dive in on Gotta Watch the Tape, the postseason edition. Not postseason that they're in the postseason, that it's post the season. Because the Browns are done. Doug Marie, Scott Pasco, Ellis Williams breaking down film and numbers on this really good Brown season. Uh, 11 and 5 in the regular season, won a playoff game, but we are going to revisit some key plays from the loss to the Kansas City Chiefs. This is the first time we've talked to you since that game. And we have a lot of offseason stuff ahead, analyzing this team, potential roster moves, what they did well this year, where they can get better. But we want to look at this game. And the way we will do that is by looking at the most important offensive plays for the Browns in the Chiefs game in this podcast. And then on the Friday podcast, we're going to go got to watch the tape back-to-back days. We'll look at the most important defensive plays for the Browns. This originally was going to be one podcast, and we went so long and so in-depth. I think it's interesting that we cut it in half. So this podcast will focus on the Browns' offense, led by Scott Patsko, and then the Friday pod will focus on the Browns' defense in that game, led by Ellis Williams. We're getting detailed on some very specific plays, starting with David Njoku. Getting loose, man. Tight end screen, second play of the game. You know, I'll tell you what, just I'm sure you're going to get into this, Scott. Man, considering that David Njoku like, wanted out of here, he really wound up being quite a helpful guy to have a round. Like, he really, as much as they – Austin Hooper was good, and they gave a lot of money to Austin Hooper, justifiably. But, man, David Njoku made an impact for this team. So, I don't know. This is a great example of it. We'll just let Scott get into it. Here we go. Key plays for the Browns offense against the Chiefs. Dive in, Scott. i got to watch the tape. Yeah, I think the Joku had the top PFF grade, if I'm not mistaken. Also had a huge, like, second and 20 catch in the game. So, um, so yeah, it was a big game for David and Joku. Um, but I picked this play, uh, and we're talking about the second play of the Browns' first drive, which was that screen in Joku, 27 yards. Not so much because of its success, but because of the possibilities it might have going forward. Um this screen in particular to a tight end, we saw that practice a lot during training camp. And then it just kind of vanished once the season began. They, they ran the tight end screen eight times during the regular season. Uh, that was actually seventh most in the league. They gained 70 yards on those plays, which was third most. But still, it just seemed like it didn't happen as often as I felt like I was led to believe <laughs> by, by seeing them rep it so much uh, in training camp. And they had they did it four times in the first half of the season, four times in the second half. So it's not like... They, uh, they suddenly went back to it late. It was just kind of scattered scattered throughout. But it definitely worked uh, against the Chiefs on that on that first drive. And just to describe the play a little bit, Njoku was lined up a little off the line next to the, the left tackle. Cooper was in the slot to his left. 
So everything was kind of tight on the left side of the formation. Njoku uh, originally blocked the edge rusher on that play and then kind of released, and Hooper was out into the flat looking to block somebody. Then you had uh, Kendall Lamb, J.C. Treader releasing downfield to block in front of him. So that's kind of how it's set up. Uh, by the way, and I, if you guys have gone back to watch that play, or maybe if you just remember, Petonio really could have got called for a hold on that play. Uh, he was kind of running with his defender down the field, had his arms still kind of locked around him. And you could tell, I, I didn't make a note of who it was, but as soon as that play was over, the defender turned around, looked at the ref, and, and was kind of exasperated that that there wasn't a holding call on that. Is it is it not play. true that that any many great blocks are right on the edge Ooh. of holding? Is that is I mean, because you can see it. I'm looking at it right now, Scott, and you're right. I mean, like the guy, the guy's locked up pretty good, but I don't know, Ellis. Come on, they're not gonna throw a flag for holding on. It's the second play. Give them let them work it out a little bit, right? Are you um, calling that Ellis? I, I think it I think it helped that uh Ninjoku was a bit past Batonio at that point and he kinda had his he was kind of shielded from any ref that could have seen it, but definitely could have been called and yeah, we're we could have a whole offseason pot about holding in the NFL this year. I do think it did it part of it, and I'm and again I'm looking at it right now. Batonio's locked up on the guy. It's a defensive lineman, he's locked up on him right from the start of the play. And he sort of the hold is like a continuation of a block that was yeah. good at the start. And now the guy is chasing downfield. It's not like Petonio was in the open field and then found him and started holding him. He sort of just stayed on him, which maybe also helped the cause a little bit. Yeah. They were just kind of engaged the whole time. Um, yep. Anyways, the, the Browns are in 12 personnel and this play included motion and play action, which are like three staples of this Browns offense. They motion Landry across the formation away from the play. And then Anthony Hitchens uh, decided to rush, which really left a huge hole for that screen to develop and take shape. And if, if you had a chance to go back and, and watch this play, <laughs> you're watching it now. You, when the Joker gets the ball, he, he just seems like unsure of where he's supposed to go. He, he just reminds me like of a deer in the middle of the street who like is looking left, looking right. And isn't sure like where the escape route is. And I watched this and I thought, what if that had been Nick Chubb or cream hunt catching that screen? You know, if it's Nick Chubb, it, it could very well be a touchdown because he sees the open field. He knows exactly where his blockers are and he's turning it on and, and hunt, you know, is going to give you, I think a better game there than, than Njoku. And that's kind of why I wanted to pick this because when people talk about the idea of having Chubb and Hunt on the field at the same time, this is, I think, is the kind of play that would benefit from that because you have, if you have Chubb and Hunt both in the backfield and it's Hunt or Chubb motioning to the spot where Njoku started that play, then you have a situation where, okay, you, you can do play action with, with whoever stayed in the backfield, and then you have your other running back there to, to potentially catch that screen. And, again, I, I just see that being a huge play compared to, to what – and it was a big play anyways with Njoku. I mean, he, he – big and fast by himself, but the thought of having one of your running backs catching that pass and doing something with it. I think, you know, we, we talk about like how this offense might progress from, from this year and evolve. And maybe that's one of the ways that it happens. Um, I'm assuming the screen pass is going to continue to be a big part of, of this offense going forward. But, you know, if people really want those running backs on the field together, this might be a, might be a way to get it done. So I will say, and going back, and, and I, I kind of would like to have a general discussion at the end of this game about sort of how we thought the Browns played. They were on the field together at least 
two or three times. There were some things where they had Chubb in the backfield and Hunt as an offset guy during the course of this game. So I know we always talked about it. I didn't necessarily realize it in the moment. They didn't really do much with it, but they were out there. Ellis, part of this is, as you said, Scott, it's 12 personnel. Njoku's this offset tight end. He does block an outside pass rusher to start the play and then releases – I don't know if you have Hunt in that offset position, Ellis, instead of Njoku. A, does he does he hold the block as well? And B, does it sell it to the defense as well? Or would you be on alert? Yo, 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 Hunt's out here. Watch him. Where I feel like part of the reason this play worked is because they really sold the tight end block and then nobody, nobody was worried about Njoku. I was having a blast watching this play as Scott was talking. And then after like the third time I tried to run it back, I got a message from NFL game pass. I'd never gotten. And it just says an error, an error occurred while processing your request. And my screen is completely whited out now and I can't see any more film. So based on memory for the rest of this pod, cause I don't know if game pass is coming back up. Good thing. I've watched this game a couple of times now. You know what um, happened? Steven, Kevin Stefanski has gotten to the NFL office. He knows we are giving away the secrets. Seriously, burn the tape. It's happened. He's listened to the pod. These guys are too locked in on what we're trying to do. We've got to shut down their access. Anyone in the Cleveland area, shut down access to Game Pass. They're doing too much good work out here. All right, so for the play, to answer your question first about who should be in that spot, I think there's a lot of truth in the fact that it is Ninjoku, which gives you a sort of element of surprise angle to it. Uh, I don't think there's anything that, like, logistically Hunt wouldn't have been able to do that Njoku did do there. I think it would be important to just rep Kareem Hunt and Nick Chubb on the field more often before throwing that play out there because, like you said, it would be a tip-off if all of a sudden he's out there and the first time he's out there you're throwing him a screen. You know, the element of surprise is something Kevin Stefanski uses to his advantage a lot, and I don't expect that to change next season. One thing about this play – with David Njoku's running style, and you mentioned it, Scott. I mean, he is long. He runs upright. And he can stride. He's almost got like a – I mean, he just looked like Derrick Henry almost in the open field, not in like the gracefulness of the runner that Henry is, but just in the sheer mass of a, of a body that big carrying the ball in open field. And I'll say this. It's a bummer. It's a huge bummer that Jedrick Willis got hurt on the first play of the game because this was clearly scripted and this was going to be a big play for Jed. And to see Jed run downfield with Njoku and actually carry a lead block, that may have sprung it because I, I can't – I obviously don't have the play in front of me right now anymore. But if you watch, Njoku is in front of Kendall Lamb the entire play. And we're seeing the difference in that play right there between your a backup tackle, really a third-string tackle, and the 10th overall pick in football. And it's the just sheer pure athleticism of Jedrick Wills. It would have been – a blast to see him run downfield probably lay a block and I don't know I mean I, again I don't have the tape in front of me again but if imagine Wells running with Njoku maybe he gets that one block that ended up bringing Njoku down and they score there I mean there was really only two or three bodies back there so it's a great design it's a great play and I think the missing piece was actually Jedrick not being in and having kind of lamb repping something he wasn't ready to do as you brought this play up, Scott, was that in your head that they maybe not should have, but could have scored here? That it worked really well, but even that was out there? Yeah, because when you look at all the open space and the fact that they did have some numbers, I, I felt like that that was a play that could have been one of those big explosive plays that we see so often. But it was, we didn't know it at the time, but the screen game was a big part of their game plan yeah. in this game. That was the first of four. And Chubb had the drop. They, the Chiefs kind of broke up another one to Chubb, 
And then there was a third, which again was a chub that they had to throw in the dirt on that last play because Frank Clark decided to cover someone. So uh, yeah, they, they clearly wanted to, to go at it. And it was kind of a continuation of what we'd seen over the second half of the season. I think I'd mentioned on a previous podcast that other 18 screens over the course of the season, 13 came after week eight. So it just seemed like they, they kind of flipped the switch and said, all right, we're going to start doing this more. And, and they were, you know, they were successful. They were, they were getting a lot of yards on them had some huge plays leading up to this game. And the, the chiefs, you know, they kind of were ready except for that first one. I do remember one of the – I'm not sure if this is one of the plays you're talking about, but they had a, a screen early in the third quarter that was broken up where the what, the defensive end for the Chiefs realized what was happening and got back and, like, you thought sort of in the moment yeah, that maybe yeah. Chubb dropped it, but he actually knocked it down. And I yeah. think that was the play before Baker's pick. I think that was the second down play. And then Baker threw the interception on third down. And it's just one of those little things where, Scott, as you said, this screen game wasn't important for the Browns, but also credit to the Chiefs over the course of the game for sort of realizing some of that. And if they hit that screen, then Baker doesn't feel pressure on third down, on third and 10, maybe doesn't throw back across his body. And it's like a little moment like that where, hey, it's just a guy peeled off recognized what was happening and broke up a play that otherwise maybe looked designed to work. Cause I think Chubb had a couple guys out in front of him there, but I did come away from this thinking, man, they almost really could have scored that. There was that one last block. Treader got up, got out ahead and got a block. Lamb was a little behind, but the other part of this design, Scott, that I liked, and, and I, I think everybody realized this when I rewatched the whole game Sunday night, right afterwards, I watched it again and it just really came to the forefront. Tyron Matthew is so disruptive. And on this play, when they motion Jarvis to the other side, Matthew ends up locked up on Jarvis one-on-one and is not in this play. He is on the other side of the field. And he's a guy when he was anywhere on the correct side of the field where a play happened, he killed stuff all day. And that was part of this too, Scott, that they took that guy, whatever the defensive lineman it was, they had to put the safety on Jarvis on the other side and took him out of the play. Yeah, and, and later when we go over that final drive, I mean, Matthew, he, he, he factors into uh, some of those plays. And I know that if you, if you read uh, Ellis's piece, the Chiefs really were prepared for this game and really understood the different things the Browns were trying to do and had accounted for a lot of it. Um, this play is an example of one that they didn't. <laughs> but uh, overall, it just seemed like they were very prepared for what the Browns were going to do. And the Browns seemed to have a carryover from – the wild card game and the fact that they were really shrinking the field and everything was short and quick and that worked against the Steelers and it just didn't work so well against the Chiefs. Can, can we use this opportunity quickly? And I don't want to get bogged down in everything, but I, there's a lot going on with a lot of these things. Does David and Joku continue to need to be here that they have Harrison Bryant, they have Austin Hooper, they're going to have tough roster decisions, but I liked as much as maybe they could have thrown this to Chubb. Did they throw this to the right tight end? Was this better because it wasn't Joku? Or would Bryant or Hooper, would they have done just as well with this play? What does a play like this tell us about how much Joku should or shouldn't factor into the Browns' future? I, I will, I, in, in the moment, and I'll tell you why you call a play like this for a guy like David Njoku, it's a reward type of play. Uh, I'm confident Austin Hooper could have gained a similar amount of yardage, even Harrison Bryant. But they've asked David Njoku this season to take on a lot of point-of-attack blocks and responsibilities. They've asked him to almost be a, a third tackle 
at times and take on some defensive ends, even some on these wham blocks where he's coming across the formation. His workload as a blocker changed completely this season, and that takes a lot of self-sacrifice considering this is a former first-round pick, a guy who, you know, coming into this league probably idolized a guy like Rob Gronkowski and thought he could, you know, score double-digit touchdowns in a given season, not be a primary blocker. So you call this for him to reward him in a way for all that he has done for this season and just to get him going in the game at a, at a point. And then again, he is your most athletic downfield runner. But as for his position on this team going forward, it's going to be fascinating to follow because I think he is, I think Kevin Stefanski and Bill Callahan fell in love with who he can be. And it became as a blocker, but I don't know what the price, what you pay a guy like that. Like, I don't know what the market is for valuable number two and a half tight end. Who's like key in your blocking scheme, but you can replace the other things that he does. And I don't know how much he wants that role. Like eventually you want to secure that payday, catch 35, 40 balls and be a tight end one. So it's going to be interesting to see where this goes, but he definitely had real value in this specific season. I'll end with this. The reason he was a first round draft pick is exactly what made him such a great blocker. His physical stature, just his God-given ability, his, his size and athletic, natural athleticism. It's hard to find NFL body ready tight ends in the NFL draft who can block 300 pound linemen. See Harrison Bryant. He's a smaller guy. He'll get bigger. David Njoku it has that frame, which made him the first round pick, but it paid off in terms of him as a blocker, not the receiver. So it's a, there's a lot of variables in there. And I know I, I kind of went on a side tangent, but I think it's really intriguing to see where they, this front office goes with him. Real quick, Njoku had five targets for four catches in this game. And like I said, he had his best PFF grade. Bryant was not targeted. Bryant did not get a target in any of the playoff games or either of the playoff games. So read into that what you will. I thought they lost a little faith in Harrison Bryant after the Jacksonville fumble. I thought that was an important Harrison Bryant almost lost in the Jacksonville game. That that fumble out of nowhere. And it just felt like, I mean, I'm I'm not surprised. It doesn't mean they're obviously they're done with him and he still played, but like, I thought it made sense for Njoku by the way. And and to note the end of this play um, talking about, you know, maybe Kendall lamb, not getting out there. Austin Hooper was split outside of Njoku on this snap, and that's who tackled Njoku. Yep, that's the block. The guy who was covering Hooper one-on-one, and Hooper didn't block him. And, you know, it's not the end of the world, but that might have been the difference. If you get that block, he might go. And then, and the hard part of this, Scott, right, they get a field goal out of this drive. They don't get a touchdown. And, man, if that pops for a touchdown, how much different is this game? Yeah, ifs and buts and all the rest. And that's, is, what we're, that's what we're doing this podcast. <laughs> a lot of ifs. That was the alternate title when Scott was coming up with titles. Ifs and buts and all the rest. Finish second to gotta watch the tape. I really, I really, really, I, I hope we have time at the end for a discussion. Just about really, I, I want to know how you guys thought overall the Browns played. Because when you rewatch this and do all the things, there are just a lot of interesting ways, I think, to look at this. And this is, this is a play that almost encapsulates it. It's the second play of the game. It's well-designed. It's the perfect time. It's well-executed. And it picked up 25 yards. But it's like, oh, man, it maybe could have gone. You know? So how do you grade a play like that? It was great. But it was on the edge of being spectacular. And I think that that applies to various parts of this game. 
All right, Scott. So that was one you wanted to zoom in on early. Where else do you want to go with this big place for the offense? So I want to take that final drive by the offense and kind of split it up and look at the first four plays. And then we could talk about the, the last three. I mean, obviously it was a huge drive and, you know, they, they had the ball at the 20 yard line, 80 yards of opportunity in front of them, eight minutes to go, tons of time. You had all your timeouts, but they only, only went 12 yards and seven plays and a punt. And we can, we can get into that fourth down decision later. Um, but let's talk about the first few plays here because it seemed to be that after they ran a couple of these plays, it was like, all right, they, they want to slow this down. Again, they don't want to rush down the field and score and give the Chiefs uh, an opportunity to, to come back and win this. It just seemed like they really wanted to take their time. And it turned out to be a drive that included a lot of things we didn't see from the Browns uh, on a consistent basis over the course of this year. Uh, on first down, he had a, a run by Chubb for four yards. And this actually made a lot of sense. It went to the right, and that's where the Browns have had their most success running the ball. That's where the Chiefs have been most vulnerable defending the run. Um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I skipped ahead to the wrong play. It was a swing pass on first down to Chubb, which was a surprising call because we've seen so little of the swing pass. When I saw that, and then later they do it again with, with Kareem Hunt, I thought, have they even done that play? I felt like I was watching like 1980s Browns and, and, and Bernie Kosar swinging it out to Ernest Biner or something because that's not a play we see very often. The Browns have run only seven swing passes to running backs during the regular season, and then they did it twice on this final drive. But Matthew saw the play developing, and this is a case where his speed and, and vision just really paid off because he just closed on Chubb kind of left Jarvis Landry and just closed on Chubb and basically met him at the line of scrimmage. Yeah. And Chubb got by him, but by then, you know, you, you, you wasted time overcoming the guy in front of you. And then the rest of the chiefs just converge on him. And he kind of slipped. I, I don't know if, if he had his footing, if he jukes two guys near the sideline, but it was a four yard gain. It wasn't the worst thing they could have done on first down, but it just was, it was kind of a weird, weird play call that I'm, I'm assuming they thought they could, catch the Chiefs on, but it didn't really work out as well as they probably thought. Second and six, this is where Chubb runs for no game again. Can I, can I interrupt real quick on this first play, Scott? I I don't mean to, I'm not going to interrupt on every play, but to me, this is a difference. This is one of the differences where you could see a difference between the Chiefs defense and the Browns defense, because I felt like there were times when the Chiefs ran similar plays. I I think Henny had for the first down when they got the first down to Williams on the little pass at the end of the game, it was a very similar thing. The Browns on this play to Chubb, they motioned Hooper to that side. They have all three of the pass catchers on the same side of the field in the route. They run them out and expect to open up this, this short side of the field. And then Matthew appears. And, and when the Browns are in that situation, Ellis, there usually isn't a Brown that appears. It's like when Chubb catches this pass on the TV copy, there's nobody in the frame. And you think, man, this might pop for like 10 yards. And that's a difference, right? I want a Browns defender who appears like he's dropped from the sky, comes off his guy and comes up and blows up a play. And Scott, as you said, this is a perfect example at it. But but Ellis, that's not where the Browns are defensively doing the same. Exactly. It's all foot speed. It's Tyron Matthew being one of the biggest disruptors and really postseason disruptors in football. We talked about him as a threat leading up to this game. And as Scott's going to keep getting into it's what he did throughout the entire fourth quarter. 
what he does, what the Browns are trying to do here. This is a man beater route. The, the Chiefs played physical man defense for a lot of, especially on the important downs in this game. And they ran a, an exchange, uh, a, a slot vertical from number two going to number one, carrying downfield with Tyron Matthew being the, the man and man coverage over Jarvis Landry. And on that switch, Tyron Matthew keeps his eyes in the backfield, likely both having tape study, but also just understanding the way the game had been going and how quickly Baker's getting the ball out. And when he saw Chubb break out in the ball, the, the Baker's opposite hand come off the ball, he ignored Jarvis's vertical and broke on the ball. You can see it on the all 22 develop, but on the TV copy, you're absolutely right. He comes out of nowhere and completely takes the play away. It should have went for 12, 14 yards. Instead, it's a gain of what, three or four. And I will say, Scott, initially I couldn't tell because, you know, I don't really know football. Was it just like a quick check? This was like the design. This was not really Baker didn't look elsewhere. Yeah. This was a design swing pass, not a check down because something else wasn't open. Yeah, later Cream uh, Hunt gets one of those, but it's 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 more of a check down. This this time it was it was quick. It was clear that that's where he was going. They wanted to clear out that side of the field, give him room to run, and like you said, Matthew just kind of blew that up. And it's uh, the right, second and six. It's the right play call. It's the right read by Baker. I mean, oh, yeah. they're. The guy who should be on Nick Chubb is, is blitzing. Tyron Matthew covers two guys on one play. And like Doug mentioned, my breakdown, he did that several times throughout the evening. Yeah. Yeah. All so, right, so again, second I mean, and four six. yards on first down wasn't the worst thing in the world. Yeah. Um, so second and six, again, this is where they go right. Uh, it's, it's a Chubb run for no gain. Antonio is pulling from his left guard spot to kind of lead the way. And again, that made sense to run that way. The, the Browns averaging 6.4 yards per carry around right end. The Chiefs are ranked 31st and 27th in right tackle and right end yards uh, on defense, so they're going to an advantageous direction. Uh, the Browns got three receivers uh, split to the left, and the Donovan Peoples-Jones goes in motion to the right to the play side. And when he did that, uh, you guys noticed that two Chiefs linebackers also shifted over to that side. So you ended up with two Chiefs linebackers, Hitchens and – can't remember who the other one was off the top of my head. But uh, they were both basically on, on – on that side of the ball, everybody kind of shifted. So you're creating more, more traffic there to get to, but Tonio took care of the one linebacker on the outside of the play, but Teller just could not avoid traffic and get to Hitchens who ends up going into the hole and making the stop. And I went back and I looked at second and six. Cause I was curious how often do the Browns run on second and six, they faced second and six 38 times during the regular season. They ran it 14 times for 33 yards, which is only 23rd. They averaged 2.3 yards per carry when they ran on second and six during the regular season. They had one first down rushing on second and six. When they passed it, which was 24 times, 183 yards, which is fourth most, they had 18 first downs when passing on second and six, which led the league this season. Wow. So I guess it was kind of against the norm. They would run it there. Um, I don't know if the Chiefs really dig that deep into tendencies to figure that out, but it was kind of weird uh, considering how much success the Browns have had on second down. That was their best average on any second down distance uh, under nine yards. So for whatever reason, they just had a lot of success throwing it on, on second and six. Uh, so that brings them third and six. Well, that's, that's just, I, this is, I didn't like this play call and I don't know if I didn't just like it because it didn't work, but it felt like it never had a chance to work that there wasn't, it wasn't like some individual chief made a spectacular play and Teller did get a little lost. Teller's like kind of running around looking for somebody to block, yeah. but you never, I mean, it never, there was no cutback lane coming. Chubb never got a chance to go North and South. And I just, 
Ellis and Scott, I guess Ellis first, is this one of those where are they purposefully going against tendency in a moment like this, knowing, hey, we often throw here, we're going to run because maybe they don't expect it, but it just felt like it never had a chance. I think this was all about the Browns knowing they were going to go for it on fourth down, which is something we'll talk about soon because it goes into the, the next sequence, which I don't understand. But as for the decision to run the ball, I like it aside from Scott's data, which is outstanding. I think when you know you have two more downs to get the first, I don't have any issue with running it. I don't like the call, the decision, the execution. Don't run Nick Chubb out of shotgun there. I think you go under center, keep a real threat of play action pass and run the football in second and six. Okay. And I guess you have to, I guess you go right here. I mean, they're playing the fourth string left tackle at this point, which obviously has to factor in this a little bit. Um, yeah. So it just, it just was one of those plays. It was just like a normal football play, which like you sort of can't afford in a moment like this. The Browns didn't do anything terribly wrong. The Chiefs didn't do anything terribly great and nothing happened. And it's like, okay, you're trying to win a playoff game. Okay. Third down. So third and six, this is the, the pass to Higgins for five yards. And again, I mean, this is the play that, that I guess you could say was executed fine. It was the kind of – you had three receivers running routes on the left side of the field, and it was really – this is the kind of play where you, you've seen Baker boot to that side and have in front of him. You, you got like the three different levels of, uh, of options there, but he kind of stays in the pocket, and he can see the blitz coming. And he gets the ball out quickly. After I watched this a few times, I wondered, did he get the ball out too quickly? Because the pressure really wasn't closing in. He could just see it. And he did have pretty good protection at that point. But then you look further down the field and you're like, well, who else is open? And there's really, there's really nothing there unless, unless somebody comes back to him. So Higgins just kind of ran that in and out pattern and he caught the ball basically at the line of scrimmage and had to fight his way for five yards, which just, it kind of epitomized most of the day for the Browns and that whatever they got, it was like they had to fight for it. The chiefs were, were taking what they wanted and the Browns just had to fight for what they got. And this play really felt like that to me that, yeah, they got the five yards and they set up a reasonable fourth down, but it was, it was tough to get those five yards. They threw short of the sticks and had their guys run after the catch multiple times on conversions that they weren't throwing past the sticks a lot. There was a Hooper one, or I think early in the game where Hooper did. And now they were giving those guys a chance to, you know, make a move. And Higgins makes a great move here to stop and get past the guy. I have a Rashard Higgins point. I want to make it something in this Higgins makes a great move and then gets to like a half yard short of the first down marker and stutter steps with a guy in front of him, where if he just would have dove, if he just dives forward, he makes the first down easily credit for the first move. He kind of a little bit loses awareness of what he needs to get in the moment. Then at the end of the play, Rashard Higgins and this relates to the fumble. This is a guy that we are now viewing as a primary piece of the offense in Odell Beckham's absence. And people are talking about, they need to keep him here. What are they going to do? This is a guy who has been an afterthought most of his career here. They easily could have lost him. He's been in the doghouse at various times when they have better personnel, he doesn't play. And he winds up getting the ball, ball in very important situations. And these are two examples, I think, the stretch for the end zone, obviously more than this, but where in the moment as he's not super young, but he's still fairly young. And I think he's football young because his career here has been sort of, you know, has sputtered a lot. That's what you get when you're throwing it to Rashard Higgins in those moments, 
that's what that's who he is because he's not Jarvis Landry or he's not, you know, an all pro receiver that it, when you lose Odell, if Odell's your one and Jarvis is your two. Now, when Jarvis is your one and Higgins is your two and your second best receiver is not exactly 100 percent ready for these moments, I think Jarvis dives for the first down here. I think Jarvis probably doesn't extend the ball at the goal line. Maybe. I mean, Jarvis is always aggressive, but I, I think we have to be careful as we move forward in Rashard Higgins sp- place on this roster. A lot of people are very in on him, right? And want him here. I don't know that he is a number two receiver going forward for a team trying to win a Super Bowl. So, and I thought these were moments. He did a lot of good things in this game, but you also can't be like, oh, I can't believe that guy did it because that's who that's where he is in his career. So I don't know. I just thought this was, again, a really good play that could have been even better. But what do you think of that Rashard Higgins discussion there, Ellis? Yeah, I don't mind having a, a Higgins conversation. Let me address this play first. This just isn't a Higgins route. He can beat man coverage when he's physical downfield and working intermediate routes, but this is a man-beater route, a a whip-out that is thrown at the line of scrimmage, which he's just not going to win. A guy like Jarvis doesn't run this route because you want him in other spots in the field, and it's kind of obvious he'll be there. Odell's obviously not an option. This is the type of route where a guy like JoJo Natson was probably missed. You know, I, I, you didn't ask for him early in the year or because there weren't many teams playing man coverage and being physical with the Browns receivers as the year went on and teams realized really the, the Ravens formula until they lost Jimmy Smith, get in these guys' faces, make them beat us. And, and that was the exact Chiefs game plan. And Higgins just isn't going to win in that situation. Um, I could have seen a guy like JoJo having an opportunity in this game to just – because where was the speed? You saw the Chiefs had it. And it's not just Tyreek Hill. You know, it's, it's other guys that just have the one trait, and it's speed. And the Browns just don't have a receiver on the roster capable of that right now. As for Higgins' big picture, I think he has a spot on this team as a number three or number four receiver. I could see him with Odell Beckham Jr. out wide, Higgins out in the other wide, and Jarvis Landry in the slot. I think that's his best spot. He isn't a number two that you can have run an entire route tree and trust it in every situation as Doug just laid out. And I said with this man beat a route that he failed on, but as for his future on the team being a third or fourth option, he's proven he can get free in intermediate routes and man coverage. And he can, he can make some big catches. If he scores that touchdown at the end of the half and it doesn't pop out, we're having a completely different conversation about Richard Higgins. So for the fact of that being a, a bang, bang play, I don't think we can totally hold it against him because it just is one of those situations where it's playoff football and bad breaks happen. And he was on the wrong end of a bad break. And I think we kind of had that conversation before you get caught in between here. He served as the number two receiver for a team that in the second half of the year made a playoff run. So he might view himself as that, but long-term do the Browns view himself as that? Will another team pay him like that? Will the result be that he doesn't stay here? But it, it was interesting in this moment. So Scott, Again, I thought did you, they probably should have made the first. Okay, so either Higgins could have gotten dropped right where he caught it, yeah. and you're four yards short. Now you're going on fourth and four. But then he makes the move, but then yet he doesn't get it. So it's just another example of like a play that was good, but not maybe quite as good as it could have been. Yeah, and by the way, Richard Higgins up to third in DVOA among receivers. Does that mean he's a number one? He's, he's taken that in, in with him to contract negotiation, I'll tell you that. Yeah, Agent uh, Scott Pasco, Richard, make sure you give Agent Scott a call for your negotiations here. Well, you need 
third in DVOA. Give me the money. All right, so fourth and one. And we've established before that this was the right call. If you're not going to pass it on third or fourth and short, give it to Baker, let him run. He gets the first down. And so they get a first down here. If draining the clock was the objective, it was working after those first five plays because you took three minutes off the the clock to go 11 yards. There was still more than five minutes left to play. But again, you just had this sense that the Browns were fighting for everything they could get. And they were moving slowly. I don't know. After those first four plays, I wondered, like, all the – all the opportunity they had when they took the ball over after the interception, it just felt like a lot of that was drained away. Like it was so hard just to get that first, first down. I mean, did you guys still think that they were likely to drive down the field and and score a winning touchdown at that point? I mean, they were coming off an eight minute drive that worked. So it felt like, okay, well, I guess they're doing that again, but this is what, I mean, this is the thing I, I just thought stood out in this game that we all are writing and talking about is, the Chiefs have a way to make it look easy, and the Browns don't have a way to do that. So, no, none of it looked easy, but I don't know. That's kind of their deal. That was kind of their deal in this game. So, I don't know. But they were caught in between a little bit, and it sort of ended the first half like this a little bit, right? When the Chiefs had the ball, it's like, is which team is trying to stop the clock and which team is trying to run out the clock? But I don't know. I saw some people maybe push that, why didn't the Browns have more of a sense of urgency at this point? I thought this was fine. I thought their tempo was fine. I thought, you know, you are, you're trying to drive down the field and not leave any time. Ellis, did you feel any differently about sort of what Scott's talking about the vibe after four plays, how the time, how they're getting the plays and the type of stuff they're doing. I had no issues with the vibe, the urgency, because in my heart of hearts, I believe that Kevin Stefanski had a trick of his sleeve. I thought there was going to be that moment where, the play caller, the the play designer is crowned in a way. Think back to a lot of those Patriots playoff games when it just seems like, and, and towards the end of Brady's time there where they were less explosive, really Julian Edelman being their only downfield threat. Gronk is a shell of himself and banged up. They would just find ways to manufacture chunk plays, whether it's a throwback to a guy in the slot and then a pitch here and then someone's open down the seam. When's the last time Jarvis Landry has thrown a pass? You know, the Browns were this trick team and running gun kind of catch it by surprise offense early in the season. And then that just disappeared. And I thought wisely because, all right, this team probably knows they're a playoff team and can save them for week 17. All right. Don't need them for week 17. Steelers game, you get out to a 28 zero lead. All right. I guess you don't need them for the second game with the Steelers or I guess round three. But now you're facing the Chiefs. And now you have the ball with eight minutes to go and a chance to dethrone the king when he's not even coming back in the game due to a concussion and you don't hit another gear. You just don't have that extra surprise. And they're the, they have the exact makeup of a Patriots team like that that is short and game-breaking talent, but they manufacture or generate their own game-breaking plays. And that's why I was okay with everything because I thought it was coming. I thought the surprise was coming. I thought the Jarvis Landry pass was coming and it, it never arrived. Can we just pause momentarily to crown the king here on Gotta Watch the Tape? Scott Patsko, king of the QB sneak on short yardage for the Browns, took a lot of heat after Baker fumbled against the Jets on the QB sneak. And people are like, what are they doing sneaking? And I saw Scott Patsko out there fighting a good fight and saying, like, it's the right play. They sneaked very effectively in this game, Scott. And as much as we talked on earlier, got to watch the tapes about fourth and one problems. They picked this up easy. Oh yeah. 
Yeah, and again, it's it's going to work the majority of the time, and you need one yard. That's all you need. Now you could do something like what what the Chiefs did. That's that's perfectly acceptable too. <laughs> but uh, yeah, give it to your quarterback, and you know, pick up the first down and move on. Before I get into the next first down, I just want to mention that, and this is a Chubb loss of a yard on a run. So that's two Chubb runs in this drive for minus one yard. Nick Chubb averaged seven yards per carry in the second half of games this season. Seven yards. Hunt was fourth and Chubb was fifth in fourth quarter rushing yards overall this season. And they were third and fourth in contact yards after contact after fourth in the fourth quarter. So you would think going into this final drive, this is the time for, for Chubb and Hunt, but especially Nick Chubb to shine. And it just did not happen. And this play wasn't really his fault. It was just kind of a comedy of, of blocking errors in front of him. I'm going to keep interrupting you. I keep interrupting you. Do we yeah. need to talk about the timeout at all? The timeout before the first down, because they come out of this, right? They come out off the fourth down conversion and Baker gets to the line with plenty of time. He gets to the line with like 10 or 12 seconds and doesn't like what he sees and calls a timeout. And after the game, Kevin Stefanski, when asked about it, called it a miscommunication. And it obviously wound up being a a timeout that they really could have used. I'm still not clear exactly what happened because it's not like the play call got in late. And so I'm, I'm confused about what the miscommunication was because Baker got up and kind of stared at it and didn't really like just check to something different. And it mattered. It did matter. I don't, you know, stuff happens, but I, I'm still confused as to really what went down. Anybody yeah, know? Point. Anybody know? <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I don't. I think that's the only, I think that's the only answer we got on that question from him. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. I think, I mean, they clearly had enough time to, to make sure they had the right play then after calling the timeout. And I mean, they, they break the huddle at 14 and get to the line at 10. And Baker is just looking and doesn't like it. And then looks to the sideline at six seconds on the play clock. And then they just call a timeout. So I don't know. I guess Ellis, does that just, it just happens sometimes. Or is that like a failure by Stefanski and Baker in that moment to burn a timeout that they needed? I, I think I'm, <laughs> you're kind of asking the same thing. Like, do these things just happen or is it a failure? Like because of the situation and what ended up unfolding, it, it may be a failure, but these things happen in a, 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 in a, in a game where communication needs to be at all time high. And sometimes things just fracture. Sometimes things just break. Things take longer. You know, Browns fans have been blessed this season with really a completely smooth transition of, call to Baker to on-field snap. There really haven't been many mishaps like this. And for it to show in the biggest moment of the season probably speaks to a first-year head coach and a, a quarterback in his first year in the system. Right now, I feel like we're doing what the Browns offense is doing. We're taking time off the clock. Man, it, it took them 38 minutes to get through four plays. I just think it's so interesting. I hope the listeners are finding this because it's such it's so critical that you could spend an hour on each individual play. So I'm sorry, Scott, to keep interrupting you. But, man, you picked an interesting drive. All right, now they have first down. They come out of the timeout. There's 5.17 on the clock. First and 10 at the 31. They're ready to go. Yeah, now I wrote a, a piece on the website today that has a, a GIF of this play in it if uh, people want to, to get a look at this. It, it's, again, it's a run play to the right, and Teller's pulling to, to lead the way, which leaves Jack Conklin to, to have to kind of block down on Chris Jones, who had been over Teller. And Conklin dives to try and make this block, and Jones just you know, nimbly jumps over him. He did that a couple of times in this game. He's pretty nimble for a big guy. 
uh, he jumps over Conklin, gets into the backfield and gets his hand on Chubb as, as the play is still developing and it's trouble right from the start. But the thing that also happens when, when Conklin dies, is that he also takes out Petonio, who was trying to block a, another lineman. And I think that was Naughty. And then he gets to the hole and helps finish off the tackle for, for a loss of a yard. It was just the worst possible thing that could happen to the, the, the offensive line that has been anointed on this podcast, the best offensive line in the NFL. Um, it just was not a good play from from the guys up front, and it just it just blew up in the backfield, and then you're all of a sudden you're behind the sticks, you're facing second and eleven. Chris Jones, man, showed up right here. Chris Jones shows up right here. Is this more a case of an all pro level defensive lineman for the defending Super Bowl champs showing up when it matters most, or is this? Is this lack of execution by a great offensive line in the moment, Ellis? I get, and it's all both. But I just looked at this and thought, man, I, Chris Jones is just being a monster right here. It's a freak play by Chris Jones, an, an absolute freak play. Again, I don't like the shotgun run. I'm not sure why the Browns felt like they needed to get into that. Um, it, it goes back into the timeout because before the timeout, it looked like Baker was going to be under center. And when they came back out of the timeout, he's in shotgun which maybe makes me think there's something about the box here that they don't like, and they're trying to soften it and then run towards the softer box by sh- showing shotgun. But I, I don't have the data in front of me on the success of shotgun run for the Browns, but off the top of my head, it doesn't feel like it is bred success this season. And both these plays are examples of that. And have you guys seen, did you see the NFL mic'd up thing of Tyron Matthew on this play? I'd have it known that Tyron Matthew is yeah. coming on and Teller pulls and buries him. Oh yeah. Yeah. I did see that. Yep. <laughs> and then he, and Matthew gets up and is like, tackle for loss, tackle for loss. Thanks. <laughs> thanks. And he and Teller like slap heads. And then Matthew goes back to his, to his huddle and is like 77 crushed me. But like Tyron <laughs> Matthew took one for the team because he got blocked, but the other guys made the play. So again, just not, but like, just not great. Like it just, it was a little disappointing that it was just, they're so, we've seen this offense in the run game look like ballet at times. And this just got clunky, but I do think it's, it really was more Chris Jones, I think, than anything else. Yeah, that, that's a crime <laughs> in any other setting. He just totally blew him up. But one thing about that Chris Jones play, he, he seems to understand that that block's coming because his first step is to the right away from, from Conklin. And that just, it's too far for him to get in that short of amount of time. And then, you know, everything just goes from there. And it's just kind of comical that he takes out Petonio too, but yeah, then they end up with a loss of a yard. And so they're at second and 11. This is the last screenplay. And we talked about screens earlier. This is the fourth one. Browns were setting this up for Chubb and the chiefs blitz on this play. And if Frank Clark rushes, this is a huge play for the Browns because there was nobody left on that side of the field the Browns had numbers down the field to block. It would have been a huge game. But Frank Clark engages and then pulls back. at the last. He seems to understand what's coming. He's in the way, and Baker sees it. There's no room to get the ball to Chubb, and he just throws it in the dirt. And this was one of only four times that, that Clark, I guess you could consider him in coverage in this game. Every other time he, he was rushing the ball other than this and, and three other plays. So it was kind of rare, and it just happened at the right time for the Chiefs because now – the Browns are facing third and 11. So is this any indication that they have now gone to the screen too many times? If when you need it in this moment, Frank Clark sees it and shuts it down because now they know this is what the Browns want to do. Ellis, is that, did they go to the well too many times here? 
It's exactly it. We started this dive with a screenplay to a tight end and it, it popped. It went for 20 plus yards. You're not going to catch them sleeping, you know, on the fourth try of this and the most important point of the game. Good defenses and especially defenses with athletes like Matthew and Jones, they know when they're superior to an offense. And what are, where I'm going with this is that what the screen tells a defense is that we're not athletic enough to beat you. So we have to deceive you. And they weren't going to get beat by the athletes that the Browns had on the perimeter. So they knew the best shot for the Browns to grab chunk plays in this game was going to be through the screen game. And aside from that first one that Scott broke down, they weren't having it the rest of the game. And to go back to it in the most critical moment of the game, again, reiterates and really solidifies to me that Kevin Savance just got outcoached here. And I continue to wonder where the extra surprise or home run type of play was because you just went back to the same deceitful screen and the Chiefs were ready for it. The other part, Tyron Matthew blitzes on this play and they only they have a single high safety on this. Obviously, there's nothing you, the, the screen is called Austin Hooper is not covered on this play because they have four guys wide. They have Higgins by himself on the bottom and they, they have Jarvis in the slot, then Hooper, then Peoples Jones up top. And there's only three guys in coverage against four guys going out in a route besides the screen. So, again, they either knew the screen was coming or something. But to your point, Ellis, they are lining up in man with no help over the top and they don't care. And the Browns absolutely in that situation could not do it. And I imagine when we get to the Henny scramble, we're going to see it because the Browns aren't lining up and having 10 guys up near the line of scrimmage. They're bailing and cover people down the field because they have to. And it's just the, it's the same thing. It is the Odell Beckham factor, which we have <laughs> talked about. And, and they're just as Scott, there's just nothing there that a, it makes you think, okay, well, what are they going to do? We just stop them on first down for negative yards. It's second down. They're not going to run. So it's second and 11. They're going to throw. What are they going to throw? What are they going to do that we are really worried about? I mean, honestly, they're probably going to throw a screen. That's yeah. very logical. So they sniff it out. And it's, I mean, to your point, Ellis, I do buy the, this would have been a moment. I, here's my distinction. And when we, if we get into an argument at the end, this podcast might go long. If we get into an argument at the end about, was this a missed opportunity or what could they have done better? Kevin Stefanski did not come up with the, the, the franchise changing play call here in the moment but there was a lot stacked against him to do that because there's just, you don't have the deep threat naturally that you're forced to do trick play or you're forced because it's just not there as part of the normal offense. And man, I'll tell you what, if they run a double reverse Jarvis pass on second and 11 and they lose nine or Jarvis throws the game ending pick, we would be like, what? are you doing because they had just come off consecutive touchdown drives where what they were doing was working. It did. It worked. And so now to go away from that, but yet Ellis, I think the point of at some point it was going to stop working and you had to do something else also makes sense. Except if you're Kevin Stefanski in the moment, you're like, well, this kind of okay run game, short little passes just got us 14 points and got us back in the game. I really think he got caught in between. But, but Scott, this is just theoretically it makes sense, but like in the moment you can see why it didn't work. Yeah, look, they, there were things that we've seen work previously that just didn't work today. They tried to get Higgins on, on a, a double move 
yeah. and in the, the uh, I think it was it was earlier in the game. I think it was the second half, and the defender just wasn't having it. Then Mayfield just kind of had to check down, and uh, I think it was maybe the Landry near the sideline for I don't even know if there was a gain on that play because it was right at the right at the first down or right at the line of scrimmage. So they tried things, but again, the Chiefs just seemed to be prepared for what the Browns wanted to do. And then as the screen showed that they adapted during the game and realized that this is something the Browns, you know, they were probably going to see that again. They were blitzing on that play. So somebody had to tell Frank Clark, look, we don't need you to rush. We need you to sniff this out, be prepared for this because we got guys running on the outside to try and get pressure on this play. And yeah, that's what happened. And now Scott, you really feel the momentum going against them that they take the timeout, it's a run for a loss, and the screen you have to kill. And now on third and 11, you're just, they're not getting to the line, with, and Browns fans aren't feeling good at this point. No, and this is probably the worst, one of the worst things that could have happened on this play because you know you're going to go for it on fourth down, but you only get two yards on this play. It's the, it's the swing out to, to Hunt. They had four receivers basically run to the first down marker and turn around. I think Higgins kind of uh, did like a post, but – Everybody else is just kind of run to the first top marker and turn around. And, and, and the Chiefs dropped seven in coverage. So it was just crowded. There was nobody really open, which meant Mayfield only had his, his only option was Kareem Hunt. And Hunt even admitted on Tuesday that he wasn't expecting to get the ball on that play. And he ended up, it was kind of a high throw, and he kind of had to bobble it to catch it. And by the time he did corral it, I mean, the defense was closing in on him. You know, he had three guys to beat to – to get anywhere close to that first down marker and it just wasn't going to work. And like I said, two yards, this is not, that's like worst case scenario on this, because as we saw fourth and nine, they ended up punting. If it's shorter, if it's fourth and four, fourth and three, anything shorter than that, they're probably going for it. But fourth and nine with the, the amount of time that was left, still over four minutes, you know, the decision comes to punt here. But why did Baker have to get rid of the ball to a check down so quickly? Because Chris Jones was in his face. And why was Chris Jones in his face? Because he beat the pro bowl guard. He beat the guard who grades. I mean, I, I don't know. Wyatt Teller had a great year. Wyatt Teller did not have a great last drive for the Browns. So this is not, you know, we saw the play where he was looking for somebody to block. This is pretty straight up, is it not? I mean, this is just one-on-one. It's not reaching. It's not trying to, you know do anything fancy, Wyatt Teller knows Chris Jones is coming and Chris Jones flinches on the snap and then just gets by him and he's in Baker's face and forces this throw. And if you don't get that interior pressure, I don't know, maybe he has time to find somebody. But Ellis, what are you supposed to do when one of your best guys gets beaten by one of their best guys when it matters most? There's nothing you can do. And Wyatt Teller has had reps like this during the season. I, I'm very confident that he was strategically placed over Wyatt Teller compared to Joel Batonio. We've seen Wyatt Teller allow some of these internal pressures from Baker Mayfield that either result in a holding call, a quick throwaway, or a sack. And that's what we saw here. Wyatt Teller had an amazing season. He's the second best run blocking guard in football right now, but he needs to become just more firm in his passing pass down sets and not being able to get beat with hand fighting up top and having a quicker defender than evade around him because we've seen it repetitively repetitively this season and in the biggest moment though it's all pro on all pro it's not strength on strength and why teller got exposed so that he doesn't go ahead scott i was gonna say if he doesn't get in his face on that on that play higgins probably comes open over the middle 
and that's where the ball goes. Yep, because that was probably the best option on this play, considering how the how the Chiefs were when they dropped. He, there was room to kind of sit in there in the middle and, and pick up that first down, but the time just wasn't there. So then in the end, these three plays after the first down with the run that gets stopped, the screen that gets blown up, and then this play where pressure ruins stuff. Scott, what did you think of the overall play calling of those three? You know, what was there something that said, no, that just that sequence, the way those three plays fit together, that wasn't it. Or here we are saying, you know what? I mean, there was a chance here if you just blocked the guys. Was was what Kevin Stefanski called kind of okay? Yeah, that I mean, the first play, the blocking mishap. I mean, how often is that going to happen in a game? Uh, and we know that Nick Chubb gets the Browns get stuffed a lot. You know, they, they, they break a lot of runs, but they also get stuffed a lot. But I think this season has taught us that the Browns get better running the ball as the game goes on. And that just didn't happen on this drive for, you know, for whatever reason. And then, I mean, second down, you're we, like you mentioned, they needed to go to something other than a screenplay because they had done it three times already. And the chiefs clearly were ready for that. I, and then how many plays you got for third and 11, <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it wasn't, no, it wasn't the best series of, of play calls, but everything kind of just went off track on those first two downs and then, then you're stuck. And again, if they pick up more on that third down play, man, two yards, that's just, that was like the worst thing that could have happened. And that's what they ended up with. Is, is there Ellis of all this stuff? Is there, you know, you're saying you were kind of waiting for the big call here. Where would it have fit into you? Should they have done it on first down? Should they have done it when it's second and 11? And I'm kind of wondering here on third down, I do think, and this is why I pushed back pretty hard in the moment against people criticizing the Kevin Stefanski punt. I think Kevin Stefanski wanted to go for it on fourth down here and plan to in any kind of doable situation. Could you have run a delayed handoff here to hunt on third and 11 and do something where you don't think you're going to get all 11, but maybe you get seven? I don't know. I don't know. Ellis, was there one particular play call of these three downs that you thought was the most problematic? I like that you suggested the delayed handoff. I don't, this team really doesn't run draw ever uh, off the top of my head. I'd be curious to see if they try that next year. I just, I just don't remember many draw calls. Here's the issue I had with this last drive. I I voiced how I wanted the big call, the trick play. I realized that that's great in a, in a, in a perfect world. You didn't necessarily need it. If you stuck to what, you had success with in this game. I'm pretty sure the Browns had what, like a five yard average per carry on the game. Scott laid out how the Browns have been a second half running team, Nick Chubb and cream hunt averaging Nick, Nick Chubb's close to like t- almost 10 yards of carry in the fourth quarter. And then they're some of the best second half duos in the, in football sticking to that and not running them out of shotgun would have been my approach to avoid that second and long screenplay. Because if you are going to run that second and long screenplay, then I think that's where the trick play comes in. Cause you can't go to screen anymore. If you choose to get deceitful, it can't be screen. It's got to be gadget. If you stick to your, to your game plan or just the, the skeleton of your offense, the bones of your offense, then it's first down power. It's second down wide zone knowing you have four downs to then throw the ball on third and fourth down. So you either stick to what you are and what got you here and really your strengths of the offense. Cause I think those are kind of cliches. What got us here, yada, yada, literally the strengths of your offense backed by data in fourth quarter running your success with running power and pulling Wyatt Teller with Baker Mayfield under shotgun or sorry, under center, not in shotgun. You stick to that first and second down. Then you throw third and fourth. 
But again, if you're going to go trick play and lean on the screen again, you got to go gadget and not screen on second and 11. So Scott, you broke all this down. We'll give you the last sort of overall view on this. I mean, it does feel like the Chiefs defense in this moment made some big plays. You know, it wasn't like, I don't know that Kevin Stefanski, you know, was terrible. He wasn't spectacular in the moment. But as you watch this and knowing that this is the drive, this is the moment where their last chance evaporated, what's your final view on the Browns offense here? Uh, Real quick, I thought for a second you were going to suggest a draw play on fourth and nine, which I think the Browns are like legally banned from using draw plays on fourth and nine. I think draw plays on, you know, third and 11 might be, might be close. I, I yeah. don't know. Yeah. Oh, Freddie man. Kitchens. Just hey, Freddie. Hope you're well, listening, Freddie. Uh, and I think that was Nick Chubb, too, by the way. So, I mean, when I look at this whole sequence, it just, you have this, a bunch of uncharacteristic things, right? The swing passes, which weren't something that we saw a lot. And I know Hunts was kind of like an emergency, but still two in, in this drive. No play action on this drive, even though they had used it on 10 dropbacks prior to that point. And then just, Baker showing throwing short all the time. He had he averaged 5.1 yards intended air yards per attempt in this game, which was his lowest of the season. And he was at 6.8 against the Steelers in the wild card game. We talked about how they were throwing short in that game. This was even even shorter. His previous low was 5.4 yards, and that was against the Raiders and all that bad weather. So it was just a, a real big change on on how they were approaching things uh, in the passing game. Baker averaged 8.4 intended air yards. Uh, during the regular season, which was 10th. That's more than Mahomes had. He was at 8.3. So, again, it was just kind of a weird thing. And just to, to see a blocking issue blow up a play, of all things, I, that was just kind of really stood out. It was just overall wasn't the kind of drive that you would pick out of this season and say, that's a that's a Cleveland Browns drive. That's comes fancy offense. It just didn't feel that way. Yeah, I think it's a combination. And, I mean, credit to the Chiefs. The Chiefs did a lot of good things. What a defense – what kind of an average overall defense needs to do in the moment, their guys showed up. You know, Chris Jones and Tyron Matthew on the this last time the, the Browns had the ball showed up in a big way. So, I did – I was looking because I was trying to, to compare – continue to be interested in the, the Chiefs have ways to score easy. The Browns, everything they have to do is kind of scoring hard. I think Baker was four of five on passes of at least 15 yards down the field or more. Because he did, they never hit anything over the top, but he had the Higgins throw on the fumble was a good play. He had Njoku down the field on one that was a really good play. I think he had Jarvis on one. He did rip some. We know what it looks like when Baker rips a throw in the middle of the field. And it felt like, like that one throw like that on this last possession. And it feels like that could have jumped everything and knocked the Chiefs back on their heels. And they just never really had a chance to do anything like that, whether it's because, but like you said, maybe that's what would have happened on third down. If there wouldn't that was have been the play. Yeah. That was yeah, the that was throw the that was waiting. Yeah. And and then, so what do you do? A great player made a great play in Chris Jones. Okay. I, I could do, I mean, maybe we just do this off off season and maybe we shorten the podcast and we just do this podcast is an hour long podcast about one play. Scott will cover what all 11 offensive players did on this play. Ellis will cover what all 11 defensive players did. And we'll go an hour and 11 minutes on this second and seven pass. We'll tinker. We'll tinker with the format for the off season. All right. That's it for this. Gotta watch the tape again. We went long. So Friday, come back. Ellis Williams will be doing the same kind of thing, breaking down key plays, 
Chiefs offense, the Henny scramble at the end, other things that happened versus the Brown defense. That's the Friday. Got to watch the tape. But for this one, thanks to Scott Patsko for all that great work on the Browns offense. Thanks to you guys for listening. For Scott and Ellis, I'm Doug. Thanks for diving in on Gotta Watch the Tape.